This is the Heartland Daily Podcast. So is there anybody who out there who's allowed to be wrong more often than climate change hysterics? It's, uh, I'm going to, since it's been going on for I don't know how long, they were predicting a new ice age 50 years ago. Yesterday, 60 Minutes dragged out one of the all-time greats, Paul Ehrlich, to predict the rapidly approaching end of the world if you don't listen to him. H. Sterling Burnett is director of the Arthur B. Robinson Center on Climate and Environmental Policy at the Heartland Institute. He joins us now. Sterling, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me back again. So who's this guy, Paul Ehrlich? <laughs> well, he's a, a biologist out of California, and he has been making a living, and I mean quite a, quite a good living, prophesying doom uh, since at least the 60s. So when I was just a baby, uh, he was saying the world was coming to an end, and he's predicted various dates when, uh, you know, he, he wrote a book called The Population Bomb. That was when he, one of his earliest big works, but he wrote books called Extinction. And basically, throughout his career, he's made dozens, if not hundreds, of predictions. And as far as I can tell, and looking at all the predictions he's made, He's never been right once. He's lost money on bets, betting with people. He was so confident and lost money on uh, some of the predictions that he has made. And yet, despite the fact that he has never been right, he's written book after book that is wrong, wrong, wrong. He gets invited. He's considered an expert on issues of population, climate, energy, how can you be an expert when you know nothing? And the proof that you know nothing is you keep saying these things are going to happen and they never occur. It's amazing. You know, Chicken, Chicken Little was finally right. Yeah. Oh, it's never right. Well, that's the thing. Um, how does how does somebody he's 91 years old, by the way. So he's yeah. he's predicted the demise of the world going back, as you said, to like the 60s. And you know he was fifty years old, forty years old, thirty years old back then, and here he is sixty years later. And fortunately for him, his predictions did not come true because he made it to ninety-one years old. Well, you know he's so worried about extinction. Ninety-one, he's lived a pretty good life. Maybe uh, yeah. you know he can help save the human race. Uh, you know, I had to say something like that. But the guy, he—I I don't understand it. I mean. In, in popular press, he's considered an expert. On talk shows, he's considered an expert. And no one once ever says, Mr. Ehrlich, you've been wrong. Everything you've ever said is wrong. You've never been right. Why should we keep having you on the show? No one's ever raised that question. Why did 60 Minutes pull him out of retirement to talk to him yesterday with a big feature? I've, I've, got, no, I've got no idea. I've ne- I don't know anyone who's ever been more wrong than he has been. Which and is- yet... They still consider him an expert on these topics. Which is okay, because he's apparently made a career out of it. He's 91, and people are still calling him up to come on their shows to yeah, be wrong. Yeah, no, to, he's made to, a living. made a good living. To be wrong. So the question is, as you said, what is going on at 60 Minutes? That's supposed to be a pretty good, well-respected 
journalistic enterprise, who over there woke up one day and said, hey, let's get this guy who was predicting cannibalism like seven years ago and get him to come yeah. on and let's treat him seriously. Who predicted uh, 200 million people and more would die during the uh, 70s from famine? Uh, who who uh, who said, you know, parts of the United States would be underwater by now, that the earth would be uninhabitable, that, uh, uh, you know, huge chunks of the population would be dead. I, I don't know, but the truth is, I mean, you know, you say, oh, 60 minutes, well, it's supposed to be respected. It's respected by the elites who watch it. I mm. stopped watching it. When I grew up, my dad watched it religiously. We watched every Sunday, 60 minutes. Sure. And, Everybody and, did. And... I guess back then maybe it was a res- uh, it was it was a news program worthy of respect, but I've watched it for years now, and it hasn't been a news program worthy. I mean, remember Dan Rather was old sixty minutes when he was lying about George Bush. Yeah, uh, he you know they, they they finally had to rein him in. They uh, they ran things on acid rain, and after they passed a law to uh, to change the Clean Air Act. Uh, then they then they run an article. Only after they passed the law that 60 Minutes had been pushing for did they run an article saying, "Well, you know, this is all BS. <laughs> we we could have solved the acid rain problem, the, the acidic water problem, with some lime in in, in pools." Yeah, uh, you know, the point is, I'm not sure. I'm sure they're still considered or respected by the elite, by the intelligentsia, right? Mm-hmm. The people who. Uh, all those people in Gore Vidal's uh, New Year's Eve party that couldn't understand how uh, Reagan had won because nobody who he knew voted for him. Right. Um, uh, but I'm not convinced that it's really a, a, a credible news organization. Well, it it made its reputation, and I know we're not here to talk about the media, but it yeah. the, the program made its reputation back, as you said, when you were a kid and your your dad was watching it, and when I was watching it a million years ago. There were only three stations on in prime time in our house. So if you didn't watch 60 Minutes, I don't know what else was on at 7 o'clock on Sundays. So they they have survived with a much smaller audience than they used to get, I'm guessing. But yeah. they had a monopoly on the on a near monopoly on the airwaves at the time. And they I think they did do good stories back then. And I think they did have credibility. And that's the sort of odd thing, right? Is that is that when they actually had a monopoly and they could do whatever they wanted, they actually acted as journalists and did investigations. Right. Now, now that they don't have a monopoly and they have to compete with uh, with other news organiz- so-called news organizations, rather than burnishing their reputation, rather than saying, "Here's the place you can come to if you really want the facts and not not the fantasy, not the fabulism," uh, come to sixty minutes and get facts no they've become just one more show with talking heads uh making wrong predictions and as as i said back in 2014 this guy paul ehrlich was predicting that we'd soon be eating dead humans he said he said i think something like uh in a few years it won't be um it won't be considered bad form to say you're going (laughs) to eat some dead humans so is there yeah, well, any? All he was doing there was doing a riff on fiction, right? Right. Soil and green. Right. Is it... He was just doing something. But you know what's scary? What's scary with New York now becoming the I think the eighth state to allow it? Uh, in in one sense, we might be eating humans pretty soon because we're compost composting humans in eight states. Yeah. That compost is going into vegetables. Uh, 
you know, coming to a coming to a uh, a supermarket near you, uh, food grown on dead people. I'm and, not sure. And I'm, you're not you're I'm not kidding. That. It was it New York. You said it just just passed that law. Yeah, yeah, yeah. New York just uh, the governor governor just signed the law. That's it, it, making it the eighth state that. Uh, Allows the composting of human beings for uh, for mulch. I think I read part of that. So if you when you die, you they don't just bury your body in the ground and then let it decay and become whatever it's supposed to become. They yeah. put you in. It's kind of like being cremated. Only you're not cremated. You're just composted somehow in a big box, and then they I don't what and then they they spread it around like fertilizer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. They they they, they put you in a box with. With uh, garbage and pe- you know uh, uh, food garbage and waste and peelings of uh, you know uh, fruits and yeah. and even small bits of plastic and it gets very hot and humid and breaks it down real quick and uh, then you can go out and uh, grow not just your roses but I would suppose your uh, your peppers and tomatoes yeah nice. uh, with with your aunt you know <laughs> uh, it, it, it doesn't sound like a good idea to me. Uh, uh, but uh, uh, evidently, uh, uh, the people of New York and California and Washington State and Oregon and a couple others think that uh, eating granny is a good idea. Is there any other area of science? So maybe, maybe so. Maybe I have to apologize to Ehrlich. Maybe he got one right. Yeah. Is <laughs> is is there any area of science? And we're talking to Sterling Burnett. Uh, he's a director of the uh, Center on Climate and Environmental Policy at the Heartland Institute. Is there any area of science that gets this much leeway, that is able to be wrong? I, I, keep a, I keep a thing handy in my notes section of my computer that was written a couple of years ago, and, wow. and it's, it's the 50-year record of the climate doom predictions and how, how many of them have been wrong going all the way back to the first – back in 1970 when they were predicting another ice age. And no, I don't think that you asked the question. I think it's a great question. I don't think there's any area of science. It's not just climate. It's the whole environment and energy mm-hmm. uh, science industry. Well, how did that happen, uh, Sterling? In academia, it, you know, they, they predicted. They predicted. They first predicted we were going to run out of oil in, in like the early 1900s. <laughs> yeah, but there's the supposed to, there's supposed to be debates about scientific theory. How did it happen uh, with well, the climate? And, and as you because said, the environment energy. was never because because the environment was never about science. It was always about ideology. Mm-hmm. It was always you know biology is a science, right? Chemistry is a science. Climatology, I'm not convinced it's a science. I think it's something that they've they've come up with for, for, for political reasons. It's not that you can't do objective science on the climate. You you can study data. You can make predictions and test your theories. But that's not how it works. If it's too hot, it's climate change. If it's too cold, it's climate change. If there's not enough rain, it's climate change. If there's too much rain, it's climate change. That's not a testable theory. That's a religion. Well, global warming only worked for a while. And and now we, you can't use that because we just had temperatures below zero on Christmas no, that's Eve. Climate yeah. uh, that's climate change. That's climate change. It's the same thing. It's, it's somehow... The warming of the globe has caused it to get colder and caused the the polar vortex to become more frequent and powerful despite the fact, and this is the problem, it's despite the fact that the data doesn't show that it has become more powerful no. or frequent. 
that's the thing is they don't rely on data in climate science. They eschew data. Models are everything. Yeah, the predictions. Are, are you going to believe the data or are you going to believe what our models are telling you? And when it comes to climate change, unlike every other field of science I know of, they say models are what's important and their output's not and those, what actual data shows and proves. And those models have been shown to be wrong, just, just like Paul Ehrlich has, has predicted things. What they use those models for is to make predictions that continue to be wrong. As I said, I've got... I've got it in my computer that I can refer to anytime I want. Fifty years of being wrong with their predictions. Fifty yeah. years up to I think fifty-two now, but it's fifty-two years working on fifty-three. They're still out there. Well, you know, and, and and the funny thing is, so many of the same scientists, uh, like uh, um, uh, Barack Obama's former science advisor when he was president, John Holdren, who predict who said during the nineteen seventies that the Earth was cooling and we were facing the next ice age, oh, yeah. and wrote books, and wrote books saying this. It's in their textbooks. <laughs> uh, Maybe that's what we had last weekend. Uh, you know, and, and, and then they just flip a coin and say, well, today we decided it's global warming. Well, most uh, of the it's country... All, it's all different. Most of the country so, had... I'm sorry, I, I wanted to ask you about this last, um, last couple yeah. of weekends. That most of the country had some really nasty weather around Christmas, including... Uh, something called a bomb cyclone. How, how rare was the severity of that storm? And are the usual suspects blaming that on humans and saying it, it is rare or was rare? Well, it's, 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 it's a vol- you know, bomb cyclone is just another way of saying a, an extreme polar vortex, and that's not new. Uh, it was first described back in the 1950s, but it's been around since then, so that's... It was, it was around before then, but it wasn't described in science literature until then. And so that's 70 years, right? And, uh, but they are still blaming it on climate change. Somehow, somehow a warming world makes, the, uh, uh, makes it colder and snowier, uh, despite the fact that the data doesn't show it's getting colder and snowier. Um, it, it, it's called weather, folks. Uh, we've, we've had it for time immemorial, and we'll have it until uh, you know, time ends. It's, it's not. There's no trend. You, you measure climate change over 30-year periods, and there is no trend in increasing polar vortexes. There's no trend in increasing heat waves. There's no trend in increasing drought. They don't exist, those trends. It's not showing the change. And it's not warming as fast as any of the models predict. There is one trend, however, a dangerous trend that is occurring, and it's not due to climate change. It's due to climate change policy, and that's we're running – we're running short on energy at critical periods because when you know the country was freezing, there wasn't enough power in New England and Texas where I live. Yeah, that's what and I that's wanted to get due to, to climate policy, and that's due to climate policy. Was green energy of any help to anybody, uh, or did it make things worse during the recent cold spell the country just went through? Despite the fact that wind power accounts for nameplate capacity over twenty percent of the power in Texas now, it was providing about three percent of the power during the peak demand. And why? Well, it turns out that when uh, when turbines get ice on them, <laughs> they, they don't turn. You don't want them to turn because you don't want them slinging ice uh, hundreds of yards onto highways. Oh, okay. Uh, big spears. You know, you, you, you know what icicles are like in your house. And they can be dangerous. They can fall off. Well, imagine a turbine ice forming on The wind doesn't blow. Ice, icy rain comes down, freezes to your turbine, and then suddenly the wind picks back up and that thing starts spinning. 
You don't want that. And it's shooting bullets, uh, ice bullets. Addition, yeah, it's shooting ice bullets. And and your solar. Oh well, we got solar. Texas is sunny. Texas is largely sunny. But when it go when it when it's at night and the ice and the snow fall, <laughs> and it covers your solar panels and you and you wake up the next morning and you're not getting power. So the point is, we we created a, a power system that wasn't dependent on the weather. You would have outages sometimes during emergencies. You know, you'd have. Um, a, a lightning strike or a tornado come through. That's 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 one thing. Mm-hmm. But here we've we're do, we've taken a power system designed by engineers and replacing it with one designed by politicians who are not engineers, uh, based on praying to the gods that the wind blows and the sun shines. We're going back to the old power system, which was we we appeal to the gods and say, please let the sun shine, so I will have my electricity, as opposed to. Well, I got a coal car here shoveling coal into the power plant, so I know I'm going to have electricity. Yeah, I saw a picture on Twitter. It was a, a train, carloads of coal, and it said, yeah. on its power for electric cars. <laughs> it said fuel for <laughs> that's That's what it is, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and you know, I've seen the cartoons where the guy, is, uh, his, his car ran out of uh, charge, and so they're charging it with a, a portable generator run on diesel <laughs> you know uh you're cutting emissions there i'm telling you um it's 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 madness to to take a good a well-functioning power system that's not dependent on the weather and to make it specifically you know depend on whether the weather conditions being just right you know the, we're, we're creating a goldilocks power system it has to be just right well I, I can't let you go this is sterling burnett and he's director of the uh, center on climate and environmental policy at the heartland institute we're talking about credible sources of news and analysis uh in the new york times did you see the essay by somebody named mara altman who says short people are better for the planet because they eat less and require less space she says it would be a good idea to search for a short mate so that your kids won't be too tall and ruin the planet. And that was a serious essay, I think, this weekend in the New York Times. Well, you know, there was a movie out a few years ago where uh, they, uh, I think Matt Damon was in it, where they, they they could shrink you and you'd live a life of luxury as a very, very small yeah. person. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. House. yeah. And, uh, and uh, you'd be wealthy beyond your wildest of dreams. Right. All you had to be was very, very small, you know. Uh, and so, look, these are the same people that think it's okay, to, that, that it's good to eat people because it's good for the climate. Um, <laughs> short people. So, so basically what she's doing to, I believe, what someone described to me is she's doing to her children is she's not feeding them all sorts of stuff. No, no. She yeah, she's five foot six, and she was re- she referred to in the story as a guy out there who's been pushing this for a long time. Yeah. and I think it's he who does not serve his kids dairy and, and some other stuff because he's hoping to stunt their growth because they'll be, it'll be uh, better for the planet. Now, now, not that long ago, I'd say thirty years ago, that would be considered child abuse, and maybe oh, his no children question. would be taken from him. Right? Mm-hmm, right. Now, you know. Basically, what he's prescribing and what she's prescribing is the North Korean diet. Do you want to know why North Koreans are relatively small and yeah. sunny? Because they're now malnourished. Right. Well, <laughs> you know, go go to uh, go to uh, the wonderful Aztec and Mayan temples down in uh, Mexico, and see what the entranceways are like for those people. Yeah, they were very little. very short because they had poor diets. Mm-hmm. Well, most, most 
I, I tell you, a doctor is not recommending this thing. Crazy people who are more concerned about climate than their children's health right. are and, recommending. And as, as my dad used to say, Sterling, and I'm out of time here, is that someone's going to come and put a net over them, this, this guy who's pushing this stuff. And there are plenty of them I out wish. there who need it. <laughs> I wish, but now I think they're being invited to the halls of Congress to tell us how to live. <laughs> hey, Sterling, always good to have you on. I'm sure we'll talk soon. Thanks. Take care. Okay, that's Sterling Burnett of the Heartland Institute. We'll be right back. 